Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Noreen, how was your week? Eventful because it was end of term. Lots and lots of end of term things happening. So it's busy, busy, busy. And then I got on a flight to come to the US for the summer. So I am absolutely shattered. And how has that manifested itself in terms of your long COVID? Has it brought back your symptoms or have you managed to ride it up? I've had a bit of breathlessness yeah. you know, where I'm just doing normal things and I'm suddenly like, he's <gasps> the usual, <laughs> trying to catch my breath. But it's not becoming increasingly worse. And how's your heart rate looking when that's happening? Well, my heart rate, if I look back on the day, instead of it's kind of sticking at a max of 118, which it has been for a while, even though I'm doing things, it's now at 141, 145. Oh, so it's definitely, it kind of correlates, does it, the breathlessness and the increase in heart rate? Yeah. So I think it's just a general readjustment and I'm really tired. Are you sleeping? Sleeping, kind of, jet lag. I've just been super busy since I've been here, early starts and not really catching up with sleep. But apart from the breathlessness, I'm kind of okay. Okay. That's kind of it. I've got these really dark circles under my eyes, which I can't get rid of. And I haven't been able to get rid of them for months and months. And I think that's a long COVID thing. You know, when you look unwell? Yeah. Even if you're having a good day, these deep, dark circles don't go away. It's a kind of greyness. I think we all look a little bit grey. Yeah. One of my new symptoms is I have in the little finger of my left hand, the second joint is definitely becoming arthritic. Yeah, so that's been going on for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, so I've just had some my autoimmune levels checked. and I'll be interested to see what comes out of that because I had them done last year and they were fine. Okay. So let's see this year. Yeah, that'll be great to have the comparison. Yeah, and I've also persuaded my general practitioner here to do a T-cell subset set of blood work. Fantastic. Let's see, you know, if I'm one of the many who've got decreased T-cells or CD4, CD8 cells. That'd be so interesting. And how about you, Emily? How was your week? So I don't know if you can hear it, but I got an absolutely stinking cold. I can hear it, yeah. And it's the middle of the summer like who gets a cold in the middle of the summer and so I think the day before the cold really came out I think I said to you I felt really like I had all my long COVID symptoms I had the headache and I've also had things like kind of buzzing when I'm trying to sleep and that kind of shaky feeling bad sleep and just not feeling great but actually as soon as the cold came out I feel fine I feel so much better than I have with any other virus in the last couple of years and I have walked um, like eight kilometers yesterday went river swimming I've played tennis today so I actually feel okay despite this cold which surprises me and pleasantly surprises me a lot of our previous weeks have been on this same tack we talk about the fact that potentially we're immunocompromised from long COVID and I think I've weathered this cold relatively well for now so far I mean I'm only about three days in but the fact that I've caught a cold in the middle of the summer what does that mean? Yeah actually I think I said to you didn't I when you were saying I've got the buzzing mm-hmm. and stuff I said do you think you're getting a virus? Do you think you've caught something? Yeah. Yeah that's interesting. Yeah I think it's just a rhinovirus I've tested I don't have a fever or any of the other things that that you might have with a with a flu or with COVID so I think it is just a rhinovirus but yeah I don't think I've ever had a cold in the middle of summer before this is something that we dig into with this week's guest we spoke to Eric Fiegelding who is an epidemiologist and a global health economist he has been quite divisive I would say in his rhetoric throughout the pandemic and so we were just interested to speak to him on a sort of state of the long covid worldwide and we actually had quite a wide-ranging discussion with him 
because really to understand where we've got to with long COVID now, we did have to go back to how we have handled the pandemic globally from the beginning. Yes, and he provides a really good overview because he's a public health advisor in America. And so he's dealt with other outbreaks of diseases, Ebola, and has looked to manage pandemics. And in quite a lot of these situations, he has been ahead of the the crowd in terms of how he's viewing things such as Ebola and when we need to declare an emergency. And a lot of the time has been slated for it and subsequently been proven right. I think what he has to say about long COVID for us, because we've come this far down the road, we are already aware of some of what he had to say. But I think for the general public, I think it might actually seem quite shocking. Yes, I agree. You say you read the tea leaves. Why do you think that China has a zero COVID policy and we're all trying to live with COVID? I think to have a zero COVID policy, you need long-term foresight and long-term planning. And in in many Western societies, we have this very short-term, tunnel-visioned, immediate political win or immediate quarterly profits uh, eye lens to everything. And in China, they see the bigger picture of short-term pain for long-term gain, this this vision, this long-term planning, you know, kind of thing where where we always try to teach children, for example, delayed gratification will actually spill uh, more benefits in the long term if you can focus on uh, that. And plus, COVID, it's it's one of those runaway messes where if you let it get out of hand, they saw, I think, um, the, the dangers. So I think, you know, it was just a, a philosophical thing where planning is, um, you know, in Western society, in many ways, we're very reactionary. We, we only act after tragedy happens. We only act when hospital beds are full, right? When the morgues are filling up. But until then, we hand wave as a, we dilly daddle and, and just punt an issue until it, it, it becomes like this clear and present danger and burning wildfire. So you put the whole thing down to a cultural difference rather than them knowing something that we don't know about COVID. Yeah, I think it's a cultural difference. It's oftentimes a short-term vision for electoral politics and short-term vision for financial profit. I think the the best examples, for example, airlines. Airlines, um, you know, I get they want to go back to business, but taking off the mask doesn't actually make your airline any better if anything, just like British Airways and Heathrow, they have all these staff cancellations. Oh, gosh, we had so many flights canceled because pilots and flight attendants are sick. Oh, gosh, who could have predicted that this will be an outcome? And the same thing happened in the U.S. as well. All the epidemiologists warned about this, that it's, again, you're, you think you'll get more short-term wins, ah, masks off. But in the long term, you're actually hurting your bottom line. But no one thinks about the long term. And, and that's the inherent cultural problem. As an epidemiologist uh, and someone who is very vocal on policy, what do you see as being the effects of the zero COVID policy versus the living with COVID? Who is on a better track? I think the different economies are built differently. For example, America has very little social safety net. The UK has a little bit more than US. Some of the Nordic countries have even more than the UK. But if you don't have this social safety net, I, I do see the difficulty in doing zero COVID, the hunkering down and, and providing for society during the hunkering down period of deep lockdown mitigations. Mm. It is conducive for certain governments to, to do it easier than others. But is it a good idea. Where does it end up once people come out of lockdown? Are you just delaying the waves? No, I think, first of all, that in early 2020, we did not have vaccines. We didn't have uh, monoclonal uh, antibodies. We didn't have Paxlovid, of course. Paxlovid didn't arrive until really late. 
and you know uk i understand you guys don't even have access to vax paxlovid like the us does so we, we didn't have the tools uh later on we figured out a lot more treatments dexamethasones remdesivir is not perfect um, but we, we figured out tools and of course vaccines came along so i think early in 2020 it was a matter of buying time until we had more tools right and i think in early 2020 the, the zero COVID approach was definitely the right approach. Now, as we get along further, zero COVID is getting more difficult, especially when we have more a vaccine penetrant and reinfection prone, evasive strains, uh, more contagious and more airborne strains. So this is why, you know, Shanghai, finally China kind of cracked earlier this year. But I think long-term, the zero COVID, by the way, zero COVID, the people don't understand zero COVID correctly. Zero COVID doesn't mean zero coronavirus. It is a target towards zero. It is not like an absolute zero. It is basically the anti-high endemic that you want to get the R to turn less than one. And if the R is less than one, it'll slowly, slowly go down. But you can get R to less than one with a combination of mitigation factors. So uh, without lockdowns, you can have non lockdown zero COVID from a layered mitigation approach, also known as vaccines plus, right? Not just vaccines only, and then let let the virus burn. Um, because I think that's a very uh, unfortunate kind of strategy that a lot of European countries have adopted because, hey, we have vaccines and that's great. They're great against hospitalizations, but we're learning, obviously, about the problem with long COVID. The long COVID is not just limited to those who have hospitalized. Even if you're not hospitalized, you have large, large long-term negative sequelae from COVID due to infection. And ultimately, when you drive infection, that's what actually will send more people to the hospital because you're ballooning the total number of people infected and thereby also ballooning the numerator that has to go to the hospital. So between two viruses, you know, more severe, less contagious, more contagious, and 10x less severe, it's the more contagious, 10x less severe virus uh, that when exponentially spread will ultimately sicken more people and send more people to the hospital. And that's what we've seen with all these Omicron uh, waves, all, uh, Omicron's daughter variants. Right now, you know, BA4 and 5 that's taking over Europe, US, and so many other countries and causing hospitals to be overwhelmed again, again. And in the summer, so not even waiting for the... Winter yeah, we haven't wind. even reached the peak of the summer yet. Yeah. And it's already gotten really, really bad. I, I just I just shudder that a delta wave didn't peak until, for example, August last year. And of course, we haven't even hit winter. And invariably, invariably at this point, it's a foregone conclusion that there will be another super variant after BA four and five, right? And it's gonna come out of left field. Because let's think about it. When Omicron BA1 showed up, we heard about it in like late November and it exploded. And before we knew it, it was everywhere in December and January. Literally within a month, it was everywhere overwhelming the hospital systems of the world. And then obviously hospitalizations and deaths accrued more in January, but, it, but the explosion happened in December. We didn't even have any idea about this in mid-November. It literally came up on us that fast. And the, the tide can easily change. Again, this is why this yo-yo approach, this roller coaster is, is a horrible strategy. We have to have vaccines plus multi-layered mitigations. And you can have, again, zero COVID without lockdowns, with multi-layer mitigations, so that the R is bending just less than one. And over time, that will get us to where we want to be. So, but we don't. So we... But we don't. And yeah, exactly. Well, in the UK, they've taken away all mitigation and it's vaccine only, really. Yeah. And it's being let rip through the schools. And They even are super slow on vaccines for children in the UK. Oh, yeah. I, my son is the only child in the entire school that's had vaccine oh because of the bad messaging. And, and, and drugs. So the thing is, like, Paxlovid is by far one of the most efficacious COVID drugs. It's 90% lower risk for hospitalizations. Even Paxlovid, the 
stories about rebound infections. Rebound is annoying, but the hospitalization and efficacy is really good. You know, I point out the rebound with Paxlovid is is actually much more common than the one to two percent. It's at least twelve percent in the FDA submitted uh, data among those with serial RNA viral load. And of course, the rebound risk is not that they go to the hospital. The rebound risk is that they inadvertently keep transmitting whenever they think that they have fully recovered, right? Um, that's the rebound risk. It's the trans onward transmission. And I tell people, look, boosters are great. It will prevent you from dying. Think of it like a four-lane highway. The boosters will prevent the highway bridge from collapsing. The chance of you dying with boosters is, is very, very low. But the issue is that you only close two lanes of the four-lane highway. And now in economics, there's something called risk compensation in which after you have seatbelts and airbags, you actually drive faster. That was the actual the initial effects of seatbelts and airbags. And after HIV antiretroviral drugs cocktails came out, people actually for a while became more promiscuous because they felt invulnerable. And this feeling of invulnerability that political leaders say, you're boosted, hey, you're great, just do whatever. And I, as you can see, there's international travel right now is just surging. It's just yeah. surging out of control, way higher than normal levels because of this pent up demand, right? That's now finally releasing. And so in many ways, yes, you've closed two lanes of the four lane highway in terms of transmission, but you're actually putting more traffic across the bridge. So it's, it kind of comes down to messaging because you're basically saying you're safer now. So go for it. Go for it. So previously you're at least somewhat semi-mitigating and now you're actually um, going to crowded bars, crowded other uh, venues. And what happens is you're actually increasing your exposure. Your ex every exposure, you're increasing your dose. And I know friends who spent three or four hours at a bar, partying, nightclubs. Your exposure is now like probably 10x what it was before because you feel invulnerable. And the politicians gave you this feeling of invulnerability. And but but inherently, if you increase your exposure in epidemiology, we know that basically if you increase your exposure, you increase your likelihood of getting unlucky, of catching the virus, of passing on the virus. And ultimately, it's again, it's not the deadliness that kills more people inherently. It's the contagiousness and the onward transmission that ultimately sickens more people and kills more people and maims more people with long COVID. And that's the that's the dynamic that we're living in that politicians don't see because there there is no simple like mathematical clinical trial efficacy numbers that show that because the clinical trial just shows a direct vaccine efficacy. It doesn't show well, yeah, but if you increased exposure, ten x, technically you're increasing your risk ten x. So you're. You may be like cutting your risk of dying with uh, vaccines, but if you're increasing your exposure, you're, the actual risk of negative sequelae of population le level, you know, long COVID hospitalization and death is not 80, 90% lower. It's probably just like, you know, 50% lower at best. It's probably less than that because of the, the total volume of transmission that you're, you're basically ballooning. I'll add another layer on top of that, and that's reinfection. With the risk of reinfection being quite much greater now because of the lack of mitigations, and the CDC itself puts the risk of developing long COVID at one in five. Approximately, yeah. Each time you get COVID, your risk of long COVID is the same, if not more, because according to some immunologists, your immune system is inherently damaged each time you do have COVID. If you put your public health hat on and you look at us having these infections as a population for the next five years, we're talking about millions and millions of people developing long COVID, which will put a huge demand on the social care service and the health service. What can we do about this? Or what would you suggest we do about this? Yeah, this is a very tricky problem because if we don't do anything and assuming that the status quo of being laissez-faire, semi-neglectful of COVID continues. I would say neglectful. Let's not let's not sugarcoat it. And uh, absent really aggressive 
vaccines that are quickly updated for whatever new variant there are. But they aren't, though, are they? The timeline for updating these is too slow. By the time they roll out this Delta Omicron updated vaccine this fall, it's going to be way too late. It's going to have a new The variant. virus will have moved even further. So absent all these advancements and, and maybe a miracle sterilizing immunity uh, vaccine that they, they create for the nose, absent all these, I think the problem is that we, we are going to basically just take the punches in our society. And uh, I, I fear like our political leaders will just eat the cost in many ways because, oh, the uh, for them, the profits of the hurt to uh, to society in their minds from shutting down or mitigating short term profit, profits Again, very short these term these are all short term profits just like what we said with airlines um they they, they take the short term quarterly profits and the in the short term electoral wins and let that kind of drive their decision making i think it's going to really really be horrible on our society in, in certain ways climate change is takes radical action and we have to radically steer the ship now to avoid the iceberg which is already melting the the momentum to radically change the direction of the rudder is always lacking in our society it, it is and so we oftentimes will be forced to crash into things before we learn right just like gun shootings uh, you know, the latest gun legislation that limited access to certain guns was only because of this tragic shooting of 19 children, elementary school children getting killed. And similarly with other major tragedies, people will only act after a huge number of people have died or whenever it hits a political leader personally that they finally wake up that, oh, crap, this is really severe. And then they actually do something about it. Because I would say that with long COVID, is we're struggling to have that crash because it is this slow burn, yeah. this build up. Of I always use the analogy: adding, adding. if you throw a frog in a boiling pot of water, the frog will know that it's being boiled and instantly jump out and save its life. But if you throw a frog in a cold pot of water and slowly boil and heat the water up, the frog won't realize it's being boiled to death, and by the time it does, it's already boiled. So we're all boiling to death. <laughs> long COVID is this slow boil because it's not this instant calamity natural disaster singular event it's not a 9-11 kind of apocalyptical event and nor is it like a early spring 2020 apocalyptical immediate die-offs and hospital morgues being overwhelmed kind of things long COVID is this slow debilitating thing in the background just like Climate change is slow marching, but, you know, fast on a geological time, but slow on a human calendar time scale, a disaster. We are horrible as a society for these long-term planning, uh, long-term slow boiling situations. And we're literally the frog being boiled. Isn't that where science comes to the fore, though? Isn't that why aren't the scientists and the doctors screaming? You know, when I was younger, I had this very naive view of the world that, you know, we will publish science and evidence and the evidence will drive policy. It will be evidence-driven policy, just like evidence-driven medicine. Um, And it will be this data-driven, perfect, quantified, causal policy-making. No, it's not anything like that. <laughs> you realize politics is purely based on emotional and transactional things that will get votes and get immediate short-term wins. And whatever optics, you know, the word optics in, in politics is so powerful. Whatever looks good to, to the general public is what they will go with, as opposed to what is actually right. What is popular is not always right. What is right is not always popular. And that's the way the world, unfortunately, is. I agree with you. I think that COVID policy is really similar to climate change policy. It's the slow march. And we're looking at maybe 10, 15% of the working population being disabled by long COVID with no real mitigation or actually any medicine for us. Emily and I, both in the prime of our life, have been sick for two years. And so you have to think that governments will notice when we don't show up for work. Yeah, I saw that. Um, I think the UK Treasury put out this memo, like I think a month ago, 
that long COVID is actually hampering workforce. Workforces, yeah. But it was a very dry policy memo side footnote in many ways. But again, it doesn't show up immediately. People are very visual. And the 9-11 Twin Towers collapsing, a hurricane that rages in, a school shooting that kills in 19 children in an instant, those are very visual instant disasters, Fukushima, nuclear disaster. They are very instantaneous, very visual, very reportable. But the slow march of climate change, not easily. What the long COVID is, it's invisible. It's people who are sick and at, therefore at home, they, they don't show up. You know, it doesn't have any zombie apocalypse sirens or anything because it's invisible. Yeah. People are just debilitated and sick at home. A lot of people have talked about, and, and Noreen and I have talked about before, you go out and people say, oh, you don't look sick. Yeah, you don't look sick. And that, I think, is a, a thing with long COVID. I think what people don't realize is that when we've left the house with long COVID, we've actually had to kind of build that into our schedule that we're going to be able to leave the house and go and do this but it means that we've had to make allowances elsewhere in our lives to enable us to do that but you're right the kind of visual of it it seems like you're fine maybe we should go around looking sicker no we joke about it all the long covid articles all have a picture of a woman or a man with a hand on their head (laughs) like whoa (laughs) They must be really sick. Whoa, is me. This is, I think, a a huge conundrum in our society that on a collective level, if you look at the data, the numbers are clearly there. If you do these surveys, it's clearly there. But data is never uh, sexy in terms of journalism reporting. One life is is a tragedy. You know, a million is just a statistic. Long COVID is this, again, it's this invisible statistic that doesn't even have a good little filmable story other than someone maybe in a wheelchair or lounging in bed, which, again, is not a compelling visual. I take issue with the word lounging. (laughs) I I, I say the lounging with that's how the COVID minimizers see a lot of long COVID. If we just change the messaging and say, listen, you get COVID, you have a one in five chance of developing long COVID, which, by the way, is like a one in five chance of you getting HIV or or cancer, because this is what it's going to do to your body. People would listen. Yeah, I think so. I think in many ways, long COVID is also this immunocompromised state. Yeah. In many ways, like HIV has captured, like, for example, if someone's infected HIV, in the Western society, it is a stigmatizing infection. Wow, you have HIV. Stay away from me. And it also, wow, you have HIV. Oh, my God, I'm so immunocompromised. I like In certain ways, there's much more empathy or, or stigma, but there's much more urgency. Like, for example, South Africa has a huge HIV endemic problem. It's a very high HIV country. If that was happening in UK or US or the rest of the world, it would be an emergency because having HIV at such huge epidemic levels and high endemic levels would be a national disaster because of a what we know about HIV is just so, so severe. And I think COVID being recognized now as an immunosuppressing thing, that more reinfections you have, the more immunocompromised you become. That's what a lot of the, the T cell studies are now starting to show that long COVID is an immunocompromised state. It's not the same as obviously airborne HIV, but it is a, a leading to this immunocompromised state. That if we change a narrative that long COVID is basically a symptom of the immunocompromised state of, of many people, some people are saying that's the reason why a the, the hepatitis uh, is surging. That's also why, um, you know, perhaps why monkeypox is. Exactly what I was going to yeah, ask you. I was going to bring that up. <laughs> there seems to be a, a real surge of all these diseases. We haven't exactly proven it, but we, we think the hepatitis is COVID related. Yeah. And clearly we're having this flu season in May, April and May, which is like completely uncharacteristic of flu. If people realize that long COVID is basically an immunocompromised state, akin to immunocompromised status of having HIV, then I think 
our political leaders, if we capture people's imagination that way, it will actually change the course and the political momentum. I'm waiting for a study that shows long COVID afflicted people are as immunocompromised or almost as immunocompromised as someone with HIV. If that headline got trending and became like this public forum discussion, that long COVID is basically immunocompromised status similar to undergoing chemo or, or having HIV, that I think could actually turn the tide in many ways. We agree. Ozoni and I agree about this. I think one thing is that people aren't afraid of COVID because the messaging has been that it's a cold, you'll get over it, you'll be fine. If people were scared, we would have a better chance of mitigating because I do feel, because I'd been in this long COVID bubble now for a while so we're like you we're really across all the literature that we would worry people enough to put their masks back on because you could look fine and you could not have all the long COVID symptoms that we have but they will come the next time you get COVID or they, they will come the third time you get COVID yeah I absolutely agree with you I'm just going to be a devil's advocate here the naysayers will say well you're you're just getting more sick with the flu and other diseases because you've been in lockdown or you've been in isolation for so long. Yeah, that, that, that is what people have been saying, for sure. In certain ways, that's their counter narrative. Just like when we first say, oh, COVID is rising. Oh, where's the hospitalization? Hospitalization's rising. Oh, where's the ICU? Also use and rising. Oh, where's the deaths? And deaths are rising. Oh, it's it's with COVID instead of from COVID, right? Like they'll they'll keep punting until they're actually cornered and run out of excuses. Yeah. People are, right now in 2022, people are getting the flu a lot again. The flu is back basically because flu disappeared for 2020 and 2021. There was almost no flu. So right now, the, their excuse, the the minimizer's excuse is, oh, it's just you finally exposed the flu again. Because we're all with each other again. Immunity, debt, blah, blah. And, you know, obviously it's a, their competing theory, right? Yeah. Time will prove, I think, uh, the long COVID advocates right that it's an immunocompromised status because the science supports that it's an immunocompromised status. I, prior to COVID, could be in a space with someone who had flu and not have get flu. I had a robust immune system. I didn't really get colds. I didn't really get the flu. And something that Noreen and I speak about a lot is now if we're exposed to any virus, we get our long COVID symptoms. It triggers. Right. Right now, I think we're in the fog of trying to sort out this because we're in this reopening phenomenon in which reopening is leading to tons of people getting infected with these old viruses again, as well as uh, with the coronavirus. I think this will get sorted out in this coming year. 2022 is this big sorting to prove that long COVID is not just real, but long COVID is the underlying reason for why all these other viruses are are more severe. And, and I want to say there's also subclinical long COVID where you're immunocompromised, you're not showing inherently any symptoms, but once challenged with a bad flu virus, you get it really, really bad. It's just like an HIV. HIV doesn't inherently kill you. It's the other viruses that you're exposed to that kills you in the end when you get to AIDS. And I think that is not just the case with viruses in the wake of COVID or in cases of long COVID. We are seeing globally in the instances of heart attacks, strokes. and The excess heart attacks and strokes is not due to some immunity debt from the from flu. It's due to long COVID. Yeah. This is where, you know, the, the tea leaf reading that we do as epidemiologists and at the World Health Network, we have a team of people who like basically monitor a lot of these trends. And it's not just me, it's a whole gamut of people in which we kind of scan the literature, scan all these uh, overseas reports. And the, the tea leaf says it's not uh, just the flu early on. It's asymptomatic transmission, there's reinfection risk. It's airborne, right? All these things that minimizers kept saying, it's not, it's not, it's not. It is, it is, it is. Long COVID, it's fake, it's fake, it's fake. It's real, it's real, it's real. And now there's like, okay, it's real, but come on. It'll go away. Oh, it, there's no immunocompromised status, blah, blah, blah. It's just some immunity debt, blah, blah. History will not be kind to those people in the end because history will realize that clearly long COVID is real. Clearly, I think it's an immunocompromised status, 
And the arc of the moral universe is long, but it does bend. <laughs> Unfortunately, it only bends after a lot of people have gotten sick. That's the thing. People are basically um, going to realize too late. What data do you currently have? I believe that BA1 was shown to possibly be less likely to give you long COVID, but there was more long COVID as a result of it because it infected so many people. So many more people. one was also, people said it was less severe, it's mild, remember the mild thing? But it, but epidemiologically, it looks milder because the, the denominator of people infected included a lot of uh, past vaccinated, yeah, vaccination. Past infected people. So reinfection and breakthroughs. And reinfection and breakthroughs are generally milder because it's like they have some partial immunity from a previous, from the Wuhan or the, some previous infection. And so inherently looks milder because you're including a lot of these milder reinfections and breakthroughs. But at, if you adjust for that, it wasn't inherently that much milder. And it's also more severe in children, by the way. Mm. Even the study that showed it was milder, like the South African studies, actually showed it was more severe in children. Ultimately, it's not true. And secondly, when you balloon the, de- uh, the denominator of people f- fully you know, who, infected, who infected. You know, you're actually sending more people in the numerator to either the hospital or long COVID stat. To long COVID. Yeah. And do we have any data on the subsequent variants coming through yet? The problem with the long COVID is, is it takes a lot of time yeah. to follow of up. Uh, you know, BA2 is now going extinct. We're in the era of BA4 and 5. BA5 is a little bit faster than BA4, but somehow everywhere that BA5 goes, BA4 goes as well. So I feel like each has a unique advantage. But they're basically sister strains that are surging worldwide together. They're so new that we know that it's causing, for example, deeper lung infections. For example, Omicron caused less deep lung infections, but it's now showing that BA4 and 5 are more like Delta, in which it had deep lung infections. And Delta had incredibly bad stats for long COVID. Yeah, Delta was much more severe. So people were less likely to be on ventilators or on the BA1 Omicron. But I think that with the deeper lung tissue and the greater evasiveness, like BA4 and 5 is the ultimate pole vaulting over your previous immunity strain. It's going to infect, reinfect more people, more breakthroughs, more reinfections, because your previous BA1 Omicron does not protect you that much. And it's going to have a deeper lung tissue invasion. And also, just for context, BA1 and 2 are more different than each other than the Delta variant was from the Wuhan strain. And BA4 and 5, which is a distant daughter of BA2 that we gave them our own classification, BA4 and 5. It is is so different from BA1. The studies show that it does not give you that much immunity. Like BA4 and 5 is so evasive that having a BA1 infection does not give you that much protection. So why was it named uh, as part of the same? Why have we lost all They those? just kind of gave up on giving more Greek letters. Could they not pronounce the next Greek letters? <laughs> <laughs> they actually said, we have our Greek letters. And if we run out of Greek letters after Omega, we'll go with star constellations. Which then the, it sky's the limit, right? <laughs> because it is actually confusing to people. If you think that this is BA5, and I've likely had BA1, it gives you the impression that because you've already been infected with a similar strain, you have some kind of immunity. Which- it's not. It's so different. It is so different. By actual evolutionary differences of mutation, it is way more different than Delta was from Wuhan. We're now so different from Wuhan uh, that... I think we just need to call it like a, a new strain completely soon. At some, at some point in the near future, when we find a strain in which the Wuhan vaccine, 1.0 spike protein vaccine, has a little efficacy against infection and only very mild, like sub 50% efficacy against hospitalization, I think we just got to give it a SARS-CoV-3 name. Because right now, we're, that's at the pace where we're going. Because after BA4 and 5, there's going to be something else. It looks like there is a concerted effort to stop naming things that are going to frighten us. Downplay it. To downplay it. Minimize it. To minimize. And also the hepatitis in children feels like there was a lot of effort put into saying that it wasn't COVID. Uh, Monkeypox, people are not drawing any lines. There seems to be like a real 
community amongst the medical professional science profession who are kind of going with the flow with the government where they're trying to they've stopped testing it's like we're flying blind yeah so it's like trying to suppress it all you're the king of scaremongering eric that's what people have accused you of scaremongering but perhaps we need that that opposite there is a case for alarmism like some people say you're alarmist as if it's like a bad word no i think it's the precautionary principle the precautionary principle saves lives as Dr. Mike Ryan, WHO Emergency Division says, in a pandemic, if you want to be 100% right before you act on something, you will always lose against an outbreak. Being precautionary is the prevention mentality. You know, we wear helmets even on days when the hospital beds are not full, right? We, we buckle our seatbelts. It's not like, oh, you know, hey, hospital beds are empty. You don't need a buckle seatbelt today. Hustle beds are empty. You don't need a helmet for riding a bicycle or, or a motorcycle. Hustle beds are empty. You know what? Drunk driving, we can double the alcohol limit. Hospital beds are not. No, we don't have that rule in which, oh, if the hospital beds are not full, we, we throw caution to the wind. We have these things called prevention and public health measures to save people's lives, even if the hospitals are completely empty, because keeping people safe and alive and healthy is a fundamental core tenant of human health and prevention and the role of government, you know, so that we don't air pollute, don't water pollute, don't drink leaded water. We do all these things to mitigate and prevent disease and suffering of humans because we're supposed to be a civilization that cares about human lives over political expediency and corporate profits. But unfortunately, we live in that world where it's inconvenient. There's so many inconvenient things that get pushed aside by corporate interests and political convenience and political vote getting. Honestly, though, how inconvenient is wearing a mask? It's not. But it's a symbolism of for their oppression for some people. There's a political symbolism like, well, I'm a, I'm a libertarian. I'm a, I'm a freedom-loving person. You can't tell me what to do. And, of course, this concern for the fellow welfare of other people in your community, of your children, and your other kids in your school, of your community, it's gone with the wind because in, in our hyper-individualistic Western society, well, at least America is. Europe, I know, you're a little bit better. But in America, basically, it's all, all about me, 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 and my individual freedom and helping the collective community be damned if it dares impinge on my personal liberties just a little bit. And I think that selfishness is very pervasive. You know, why should I suffer for the greater good of the community? And I think mass to them is like this government control thing. For those who want to fight big government, fight big brother, fight for the libertarian utopia, mask is like the ultimate symbol of oppression to them. You did quote just now Mike Ryan. Um, yeah. Why do you think they've taken this particular attack with monkeypox when you obviously disagree with them? Well, I think WHO is slow acting. By the way, in January 2020, they had punted and delayed decision on a PHEIC, Public Health Emergency of International Concern, three times before they finally declared in the final few days of January. And I was furious at them because, oh, we have no evidence of human-to-human transmission. No, you don't have evidence of or against doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, right? And this is inherently the precautionary principle. We don't have evidence of doesn't mean that there isn't any. And in a precautionary sense, you should assume that there is some sort of dangerous modality happening. And therefore, you should proceed with caution, proceed until, with caution such time. Until, until you know for sure and then lift it. But um, people downplay it's just a cold. It's, uh, it's just a flu. You don't need to wear a mask. It's not airborne. There's no reinfection risk. There's no asymptomatic transmission. <laughs> right now, we know that more than 50% of all transmission is actually asymptomatic transmission. So the good news is that WHO is reconvening. Dr. Tedros is reconvening the emergency meeting and hopefully they'll declare PHEIC soon. That's just the first step. I think at this point, it's becoming obvious it's a pandemic. We declared a pandemic in 2014 for Ebola with way fewer cases than we, we have now with monkeypox. So just clear, clear up one thing. Monkeypox is airborne, right? I would say it's, it's less airborne than COVID, but it is potentially airborne. Even CDC and WHO data previously showed 
Yeah, there's there's so many memos and documents that used to say monkeypox is either airborne or respiratory droplets and therefore masks are good. But now somehow they scrub them all. Like, yeah. it doesn't make sense. We have screenshots. We have like internet captures of old WHO and CDC websites that show it said either airborne or respiratory droplets, mask, mask, mask. Yeah, and you're saying that has been erased. Yeah, no, yeah, some of them have been erased. The WHO has erased one of their PDFs on, on this after we pointed it out to them. Like, we actually have the day before and after screenshots. CDC has scrubbed it from their travel advisory that you need to wear masks. This is all well documented. And they even put out press release releasing on it. Hell, the CDC doesn't even say recommend condoms, even though everyone knows that monkeypox <laughs> is a urogenital disease. They don't even say condoms. And this is this incredibly frustrating thing. Again, I'm pretty sure the arc of the moral universe will show that we are right in terms of at least having mass guidance. Is there anything that you're seeing out there in the world that we should be aware of? Well, I think this immunocompromised status with long COVID is worrisome. Monkeypox, I worry. Are, did we just get unlucky with mutation that is causing a monkeypox <laughs> a, a pandemic? It's just a coincidence. <laughs> or is it coincidence or is it that there's going to be some other new um, pandemic viral outbreak that is going to piggyback on whatever COVID has caused? to you know, further exacerbate and threaten the world. I think those are the kind of things we're kind of looking for. Because HIV emerged out of nowhere back in the 80s, right? Is this going to cause an emergence of something new? Um, or a resurgence of something. Resurgence of something like the polio resurgence. Yeah. I don't know what the hell that came from. So weird, all these things. <laughs> all happening at the same time. Is there anything to connect? Yeah, well, the anti-vaccine sentiment has got, got grown worse, um, and that's also worries me. But, you know, this is the stuff that keeps me awake at nights. Can I just ask you, regarding long COVID, what do you think, from everything that you've observed, is our best course of action? Aside from actually trying to stop people getting COVID, for those of us who already have long COVID, what have you seen? What do you believe is our best course of action to try and get well? We need more funding and research on actual long COVID as a disease. So I think getting recognized, there's an ICD code for long COVID now. Yeah. And getting more and more recognition for it so that we could study it. In many ways, in order to study it, you have to at least a diagnosis of it, right? Fighting for the diagnosis of long COVID right now among doctors. Having an ICD code doesn't mean that you're going to be diagnosed with it. I think fighting for the diagnosis of long COVID is something, first of all, is really important. Getting the recognition that it is a debilitating disease. You should be eligible for disability benefits, that it is, it is something the government should pay disability for. I think all these things we should be advocates right now. And of course, once it's recognized, then you can do better research on them. Database research has showed those with long COVID have elevated risk of XYZ diseases, which now we're clearly showing you have a lot of symptoms. Once we start showing it hits the bottom line and showing that it's actually causing huge workforce dropout, huge workplace shortages, driving up the cost of labor and therefore the cost of everything that's intricately part of the inflation problem because of labor supply chain shortages and Part of that is human supply uh, uh, workforce shortages. Then I think the economists and the bankers will finally come to our side that this is something we have to address. It is crushing our workforce. And therefore, that is when we will get political action. It's a stepwise approach. And obviously, it requires concerted approach. Research and data, hopefully, hopefully, will actually convince them to take action. But I think in certain ways... By long COVID, driving down the available workforce should actually hopefully wake up the economists and the bankers to actually do something and tell the politicians that this is something that we need to care about for economy. Yep, I think that's a big comment on our society, isn't it? That nothing gets done until it impacts the yeah, economy. economy. Once it hits the bottom line of some institution, uh, and their operations, I think that's when people will care. Well, the politicians will hopefully be made to care. It's entirely reactionary. It's entirely post-talk. 
entirely not prevention based, entirely based on when shit hits the fan. Yeah, entirely not governed by the science. And it's costing the healthcare system way too many dollars. Maybe we reduce the risk of long COVID, we could actually save money. Oh, oh, maybe we should care. I think in certain ways, if we show the ties to workforce, labor, economy, cost of healthcare, that's what's going to make people care. I was really keen to ask him, as you can tell, it was my first question, about China's zero COVID policy. Yeah. And how it would kind of pan out down down the road in terms of long COVID. And this idea of cultural differences making a massive difference to the way that we approach disease and public health and each other, I think was a point well made. Well made at that point and comes back throughout the whole interview. It kept recurring, this idea that particularly in some societies, we are not good anymore at looking after each other or looking out for the greater good. It's kind of each man for himself. And when it comes to this, we just have to learn to live with it. Listening to that interview, it doesn't sound like those of us who have been affected in this way are just going to be able to learn to live with it. Or we're going to have to learn to live with it, but it's not the lives that we had previously. I think it's going to take a huge effort on people who not only are suffering but also support us to make any changes. And I just, with politics the way it is, it seems unlikely. Apart from, as he says at the end, it's down to economics. As soon as it starts impacting the economy too much, that's when people will start to act. And that's pretty sad. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.